Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Before I give the message, I want to show a video that will help set the mood and, and kind of give you a, a frame of mind for what you're going to hear from God's Word today. So check out this video, and I'll come back up in about five minutes. Love that video. I, uh, I first pulled that off of YouTube about 16 years ago and showed it at church back in 2007. And uh, I remember the first time I saw that video, I was sitting at my desk and I was just weeping. Because I remember feeling that in the past when I was worshiping God, and it had been a while since I had felt that kind of full engagement with the presence of God. You know, what I love so much about that video is that in five minutes, you see the evolution of this young man's experience of God. And he starts in New York City, wherever that is just... This is the soundtrack for his commute. He's just listening to music. He's passively receiving a song as he walks. But at some point in that journey, he is not just moved by the song, but he's moved by the God to whom that song is pointing, and he can't even continue the walk. He is in the presence, in the grip of a real God, and is no longer just a song. It's the presence of God. It's a moment of real worship. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that with God where it wasn't just thoughts, but the whole of you, your whole being was absorbed, wrapped up in a moment of connection with God. My guess is, if you're like me, um, those moments don't come every Sunday. They don't come every day. But when they do, they are unmistakable, and you want to hold on to them as much as you can. I'll post that video in the, in the uh, recap email that will go out tomorrow or Tuesday, and I hope that you can just watch it from time to time and be blessed and encouraged um, about what the heart of praise really is. You know, praise is a word and an activity that seems, it feels familiar to most of us if we've been in the church for a while. But I want to explore this morning from a passage of Scripture, really just one verse, something important about what praise is and how God uh, would like us to practice and experience praising Him. I want to look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 15. And the title of the message is, the sacrifice of praise, which is a phrase you might have heard before some, at some point in your time at church. The verse reads like this. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And I want to walk through that one verse together with you and take a, a deeper look at some of the key words or phrases that pop up in that verse, because I think they're really important to help us understand how God calls us to praise, where praise comes from, what it's meant to be. The first phrase I want to look at in that verse is through Jesus, through Jesus, very important words. 
I'm going to keep looking back just to make sure I'm on the right slide because our, our monitor up here is not working today. Um, in the Old Testament, for the ancient Jews, animal sacrifice was a very important part of the way that they worshipped God. And personally, as a modern Christian evangelical pastor, I'm really glad that we're done with animal sacrifice because church and my job would be very different. This place would smell and sound very different. I couldn't wear white pants to church if animal sacrifice was still the thing of the day because there'd be blood everywhere. There were a few times a year where the whole assembly of the people of God were called together and they would offer sacrifices at the same time in recognition of an important moment or an aspect of their relationship with God. And one of the most important days for the Jewish people was a day called Yom Kippur, which literally translated means the Day of Atonement. See, I believe that the human heart instinctively calls out and reaches out for God. I believe that the human heart clearly knows the difference between what is good and what is bad, and we long for, in our own selves, to be good the way God is, and to receive and experience the goodness of God in this world, even in the lives of others. When we don't experience it, when we ourselves violate that goodness, we feel it somewhere deep down. I don't think you have to be religious to feel the darkness that settles over us when we have clearly violated our own conscience, have done bad. You might not call it sin in your worldview, but everyone has a concept of sin in their lives. Otherwise, we'd never get angry at anyone else. We'd never be upset or offended. If you don't have a moral framework for the concept of sin, you should be happy and accepting of everyone, whatever they do, all the time. But that's not the case. We instinctively know there is right and there is wrong. And when we are the ones in the wrong, we feel the weight of that. We enter into self-loathing. We wonder how to be different. And we reach after the goodness of God, wanting somehow to be restored. If you are a person of faith, you know that the sin that we commit in some way creates a feeling of distance from God. Or at least on our, our end, it really does. And so we want a way to close that gap again. And for the ancient Jewish people, animal sacrifice was the way that this happened. On the Day of Atonement, there was a very important ceremony involving two goats. One of those goats was really lucky and the other one was not. Goat number one was slaughtered and its blood was drained and then it was brought into the holiest inner part of the temple where it was sprinkled on the altar and it was a way of symbolically cleansing the people of Israel for their guilt. Then the, the the body of that first goat was carried outside the camp, outside the city, where it was burned as an offering. The second goat, and they, the way they decided which goat was by lot. It wasn't predestined. They would just cast lots, and one of the goats was the one that was going to die, and the other was called the scapegoat. That's where we get the modern term scapegoat, someone who takes the blame for someone else. And so the scapegoat, goat number two, uh, I think there's a slide of that, <laughs> The priest would lay both hands, the high priest would lay both hands on the head of the goat, and he would confess the sins of all the people of Israel over that goat. And in that symbolic gesture, it was as though he was saying, may the guilt and the damage 
and the moral a violation of every wrong thing we as a people have done rest upon the head of this goat who then will take that, that guilt, that blameworthiness, and then they would usher that goat out. One person was assigned the task of bringing the goat very far out away from the city and then shooing it away into the wilderness so that it would carry the sins of the people far away from where they lived. The idea was that the, the idea, the remembrance, the reality of our sin and our sinfulness weighs us down, and we needed a way to symbolically get this thing away from us, and so they did that through the agency of animals. I think this really points to something fundamental in the human spirit, in the way that we process what is good and what is not good in ourselves and in the world around us. It's much easier, can we admit, to see the sin in other people's lives than in our own life. It's one thing I have learned over the years very clearly is that it's a lot easier to be offended at others than at ourselves. I think one of the gifts of old age is that you develop a a more refined ability to be offended even at yourself. No more blindness about the kind of person I really am. I still feel the weight of it when I sin. Do you? I know we feel the weight of it when others sin against us, but do you still feel the weight of the sin that you commit in your heart? Now, what's interesting is later on in the New Testament era, in the time after Jesus, the writer of Hebrews gives us a very interesting insight into a shift that was happening in the religious world and how to rightly interpret this whole business of animal sacrifice. There's a reason that we don't sacrifice animals anymore in the Christian church. In Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, here's what it says. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing For those who came to worship, if they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And I'm sure all the goats and the bulls said, thank you. Getting slaughtered all the time. And what what did we have to do with what you guys did? Can the blood of an animal take away the great damage and violation of human lives to one another and to God? The ritual of animal sacrifice was merely a foreshadowing of a greater, truly effective salvation That was still to come. And several verses down in that same passage in verse 10, here's what the writer of Hebrews explains. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. 
so that we don't have to take the lives of innocent animals as a way of dealing with the heaviness of our sin, but that Jesus Christ in his one-time sacrifice would take care of that problem and do something about the darkness and the weight of our guilt once for all time. And that's a very important phrase, once for all time. It is not a thing that has to be repeated again and again. Have you ever spent three hours detailing your car? If you're a true car guy, you know that it's impossible to truly detail a car in three hours. But have you ever spent three hours really cleaning your car, knowing in a month it's going to be a mess again? Or if it, was, it happened to be your family minivan, in like three hours it's going to be a mess again? That's the, the nature of animal sacrifice. Was, it was a part-time solution to a permanent problem in the human experience. And what the writer of Hebrews is revealing to us is that in Jesus Christ and what he did in his sacrifice, once for all time, he settled this problem of how sin separates us from God, makes us unacceptable to him. Now we can still, if we are in Christ, that issue has been settled forever. Once for all time, our sin as Christians no longer separates us from God. It can create the feelings of relational distance. It can create remorse. There's no dampening the actual damage of the consequences of sin. But because of what Jesus has done, our sin no longer creates a separation from God that has to be addressed again and again and again. The reason it's hard for us to accept the good news of this gospel is that that's not the way our relationships with anyone else on earth seems to work. With every human relationship, every offense, every violation is remembered forever. We can't let each other go. We can't even let ourselves go. It doesn't seem fair. We even raise our children that way sometimes. Every infraction is pointed to just in case they get off too easy. The reality of this idea of grace is so absent or hard to see in our world that it makes the gospel unintelligible by extension. But the great news of the gospel is that because of what Jesus has done, he has made us holy. Do you know what that means? That means that the stain that makes us unacceptable to God has been covered over so that we are acceptable to God in spite of our sin. That he does not reject us because of it. That it doesn't mean we stop belonging to him because ultimately the word holy is not a word about Moral righteousness and perfection, it's a word about belonging. Holiness is not that I have a 5.0 GPA in my, my moral life, but that in my life, God sees me as his own. I am set apart belonging to him. I am his special possession. Imperfect as I am, I will never again have to settle the question of to whom I belong or how I can approach a holy God as the person that I am. I wish we could learn in the church to treat one another more this way because then it would make the good news of the gospel so much easier for others on the outside to understand. I wish we could have this gospel of grace in our homes so our children grow up understanding that they are not forever auditioning. This does, and here's the crazy part of it. You would think this kind of system, it makes no sense logically. Everyone's just going to get away with murder. How do you just keep accepting people when they walk all over you? And 
Paul, in his letter to the Romans, gives a very interesting explanation of that. You would think that by the abounding grace of God, we would just be tempted to sin more and more, but it doesn't work that way. Uh, in Romans 2.4, he says, don't you know that it's the kindness of God, his patience with us, that ultimately leads us to repentance? You know, we think that, that others are going to be only corrected and set on the right path if we point out every single bad thing they do and never let them out of the doghouse. Then maybe they'll get their act together. And we believe that our unforgiveness is going to purify society. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the everlasting, un- unfathomable patience and grace and forgiveness and mercy of God is what creates the space for us to see our own wickedness, come to hate it, and deeply desire to be more like this God. It's the mercy of God that finally makes us able to deal with the darkness that clings to us, and it sets us free from this endless cycle of, I'm terrible, I'm back to square one with God, i got to start over, i got to do all kinds of things to grovel and make it right and crawl my way back to God. And the good news is that is no longer needed because Jesus Christ has settled the question of your belonging to him, of your being acceptable to his father through what he did once for all time at the cross. If we truly understood this freedom which God makes available to us in Jesus, there would be this irrepressible urge to do something to respond to that. I don't know about you, but I'd almost go buy a bull just to sacrifice it, knowing what he actually has done for me. So what do we offer this God in an era where animal sacrifice is no more? By the way, please don't misunderstand anything I just said to say that God has no moral standards. He doesn't care what we do. He cares very much. But he sets us free from this destructive cycle of self-loathing a feeling that God has rejected us because of what we did. If that is true, then by, virtue, by extension, he accepts us because of what we do. That's not true. He accepts us because of what his son has done. So when we give praise, the idea of Christian praise is it's, in, it's unintelligible, it's incomprehensible apart from what Jesus Christ has done for us. That is the deepest foundational source of all Christian praise. It's not that I got into the school I wanted to or the girl said yes to homecoming or a lot of good things, blessings in our lives, recoveries from illness, getting a promotion, lots of fun things in life to be thankful for, to praise God for. But at the heart of all true Christian praise is through Christ this great thing which God has done for us. If that is not the foundation of all praise, then we will become the kind of people who can only thank God when life hands us goodies. The most enduring praise is a response to God himself and this thing that he has done for us once for all time in Jesus Christ. I'm raising my voice and getting excited because this is something I need to preach to myself all the time. We don't just thank God for giving us good gifts, 
But we thank and praise God for the gift of Jesus Christ and the incredible, unimaginable freedom that gives us to become more like him and to create a church and a family and a society we actually would like to live in. One in which there, are, there is a road to recovery from violation and offense. I want you to also note something. There's this word praise that is kind of familiar to us, but I want to make sure that we are clear what that word means in biblical usage. The word praise in the Greek, at least in this verse, is the Greek word inesis, and it, it has this very strong meaning of a response to God for something he has done. That's important because sometimes uh, we think of praise or worship as just an exuberant feeling inside. If you've ever been to a youth conference and you're, you're in that uh, mosh pit, you feel it, right? There's a kind of praise-like euphoria that is created just by the beat and the tunes and all that, the energy of the room, and that's unmistakable. It's infectious. I don't look at that with skepticism and doubt, but I just know that there's a way of feeling something that isn't actually a response to God. It's just a really positive feeling, good energy, and that is not the ultimate source of what God is calling praise in his word. There's a very strong undercurrent of gratitude tied in with praising God in response to him. It's, it's the way like when, when in, you know, basketball players, they make an incredible layup and then they go and point to the guy who gave them the assist, that, that awesome pass, without which none of that would have been possible. You know, it's not just, look what I just did, but it's, hey, this play made, made possible by that guy right there. Who's going to get a byline in his stats as an assist. But the whole point is shared by us. Those two points are ours. It's that kind of acknowledgement, a humble heart of gratitude that says, I didn't get here all by myself. I didn't do all this, just me. God or others are responsible for so much of the success in my life. And so the, the biblical idea of praise isn't just an exuberant feeling. It is a response to God himself and to something that God has done for us. Do you know what the Hebrew word for praise the Lord is? Anyone know? You know the word. You might not know that's what it is, but it's hallelujah. The word hallelujah, which even irreligious people know, and how do we use it in common usage in, in English? You don't have to be a church person to know the word hallelujah. You say it when something incredible has happened for you. It's a response to a thing. It's not just a feeling. No one just goes, hallelujah. Why? I don't know. I'm just feeling Hallelujah. That's the wrong word. Say something else. Woohoo! I don't know. Rebel yell. The word hallelujah, we all know, means that something amazing has just happened, which is a relief to me because after everything I've tried, I couldn't make it happen, but it's happened. Hallelujah. I was late for a meeting and the best parking spot by the building just opened up. Hallelujah. It's that feeling that is captured in praise. I can't believe how blessed I am. That's the nature, the heart of what praise is. It is a deep-seated response to God and what he's done for us. As we move on in the passage, we see this other interesting phrase. This praise of ours 
is the fruit of our lips. And both of those words, fruit and lips, are important. And I want to look into both of them. Fruit, whenever it's used in, in this kind of context in Scripture, always means it's the product or result of the work of God. So when we say, are you being fruitful? We're not saying, are you being busy or are you doing a lot? What we're saying is, is God working through you? Is there a product or a result through your efforts or in your life that points to the work of God in you? Ultimately, whatever fruit is born in our lives doesn't point to us, but it points to God who has caused that fruit to rise. That's why the the word fruit is used. Fruit doesn't just appear. There's no such thing as fruit that just pops out of the ground on its own. It grows off of a plant. The plant nourishes it. It houses it. It creates all the, the infrastructure. And then the fruit pops in. And that's what everyone loves and celebrates. No one ever said, oh, I love the branches and the bark of my apple tree. I love its leaves. No one cares about the leaves or the trunk or the branches. They only want the fruit. But the fruit didn't get there on its own. Some other thing caused the fruit to come. That's the nature of all spiritual fruit in our lives. Is It's not just this thing that happens. It's a thing that is made. And primarily as Christ followers, we understand it to be the result or product of the work of God in our lives. That's why we have the biblical phrase, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's a way of saying when the Holy Spirit of God possesses a person, there is a clear manifestation of that possession. The same way that when a person is possessed by an evil spirit, you know, you've seen the movies, person possessed by an evil spirit, you can't ignore it. There's a manifestation of that. And what we're saying is when the Holy Spirit possesses a person, exactly the same thing happens, but it looks very different that spirit manifests himself through the person. It's a fruit. So what we learn from that is that praise begins in our lives long before the words escape our mouths. That what gave birth to the fruit of praise was not ourselves, but something which God has done in the real world, in our lives, that has caused the feelings of praise to well up in us. It's not a response to how I feel. It's a response to what God has done, and it has given me this feeling of a desire to respond or to express. That's why I think these newer songs that are really catchy can create a kind of euphoric, praise-like feeling simply by virtue of the words, or I'm sorry, the, the, um, the tune and the beat. If you take an instrumental version of some of our, our great Christian uh, youth songs today, you can play them at a club and people will dance. And it will create an energy that doesn't always have to do with God. That doesn't mean none of those people are feeling God. What I'm saying is it's possible to be caught up in a feeling of euphoria That isn't what the Bible would describe as genuine praise, because genuine praise is a fruit that wells up from something God is doing deeper within that person. It's a result or product of his work. So if that's not why we're singing, then it still doesn't, it's not without value. I think 
Praise has some inherent value, even in just the, the words and the singing of it in itself. But you know how it is. There are some songs that are like at best mediocre songs, but because they are rooted to a, a time in your life or a memory that so deeply stirred you, they will forever have a better value or different meaning for you. For me, one such song that's not a Christian song is the Swedish band Roxette's It Must Have Been Love. You guys know this song? It shows how old I am, but that was a new song uh, right around the time Jeannie and I started dating. And that song is, at best, a, it's, it's mid. It's very, it's an, it's an okay song, but it will always remind me of this weird night where we're both standing outside my car under a streetlight in front of her apartment. I dropped her off at home, and we just decided to slow dance to that song on my car radio on the street. And I was like, what is happening? <laughs> what, what is this moment we're having? And... That's why, to this day, when we hear that song, it stirs up weird feelings. And it's not the song itself, you have to understand. It's what that song has come to mean to us that gives birth to the feelings when that song comes on. I think for many of us, we can say the same about certain Christian songs that were accompanied by moments where God was drawing us really close and deeper into himself. That's why praise, when we sing together as a church, our praise time doesn't actually begin when the the band plays their first note. It begins during the week when God is very much at work producing the fruit of praise in our lives. And so that when we come here on Sunday, if we've been looking for and experiencing God throughout the week, the singing hits different because it's not just the music. It's what the music points to and how it corresponds to a reality in our lives that tells us God is real. He's in our lives and he is working. It's important to give one word of caution here, though. I want to make sure you're careful to understand we don't just look for God and praise him because of the circumstances of our lives. It's not just that God has done good things. Sometimes the most powerful praise in our lives don't come because he did something, but because he is something. That's what I love so much about that music video, is that this young man, at one point, he reaches that little island in the middle of the street, and he's gripped by it. It's not like God did something for me, but this God is amazing. He is holy, And the the truth of what that means washes over him and he can't move on. Sometimes the most profound praise in our life is not because God did a thing for us, but that God revealed something about himself to us. Be careful not to only look for God in the ups and downs of your one single life because God is infinite. If the only time we can know God is where he shows up in one solitary human life, and if that's the only place we learn to look for him, our view of God will shrink every single day. He will only be as good as our best day or as bad as our worst day. And so how do we look for God in a way that produces genuine praise? One way is we actually look deeply into his word because in that book, God lets us see himself, his true nature. How many of you enjoy being misunderstood or misrepresented by other people? Having rumors spread about you about what you're like or what motivates you, what drives you, what you meant when you said a word. How many of you enjoy that feeling? I hate it. You hate it too. The only way to actually get God right is to let him speak for himself. To look at his word 
and just receive his self-disclosure. You want to know what I'm like? Don't let someone else tell you. Let me show you myself through my own words. This is me. And sometimes he'll show himself to you in a way that will blow your mind. And you'll say, I can't understand. How could God be like this? I want to be more like that. And you're frozen in that moment. And sometimes it's just looking attentively at the world around you. Because sometimes God really shows up not in just your life, but in the life of someone very close to you. I also want you to notice that it says it's the fruit of lips. Okay? Sorry. The fruit of lips. That means that it's not just felt inside. Shh, I am praising. You just don't know it. It's just, shh, I praise like really intensely in here. And that's possible. Don't get me wrong. I don't mean to mock the, the moments of private, unspoken, unexpressed worship. But when he says it is the fruit of lips, that's very important. What he's saying is praise is expression. It's verbalized. And if you can't talk because of a physical disability, then talk with your hands, but don't just keep it inside. Praise is not meant simply to dwell in the heart and the mind and never escape into the visible world. Praise must be. And we're going to watch the Bears probably lose to the Packers today, okay? And I just got to be honest, all right? I'm sorry. I, I want them to win. I want them to win. But... You know, when you watch, if we do win, what's going to happen? Are you going to be like, oh, look at that. We just beat the Packers. No, you won't be able to control yourself, right? Something from in there will come out. And even the most unexpressive person will start hooting and hollering. There's something about expression. That's why it's hard to bless other people with words that are never spoken. If we learn to do this with God, eventually we will learn to do it with the other people around us who are waiting for us to say the words that seem self-evident to us. Do you love me? Ugh. Yes, I love you. I, I know, but I just want you to say it just a little bit. It, it touches me when you say it. I know you feel it. You know it. You think it. But once in a while, could you just say the words? It matters to the people that are in your life. And it, we can begin to learn that most safely with a God who is always loving. Let me also say that it, it, in case you're saying, I do that, but I, I praise out loud in my car alone when I'm by myself, I get that too. That's great. But it says, let us. And the rest of the context of the latter half of the book of Hebrews clearly shows that what is in view here is not private verbal worship, but it's in the communal context. Let us learn to give voice to the praise welling up through our lives as God is at work. And that's what leads us to this last word, this last question. Why does he call praise a sacrifice? What a weird phrase. Give God the sacrifice of praise. Well, I think some of us know exactly why that word is used. Because every time we go to a church and the singing starts, you're like, ugh. I just want to hear something say hi to people and go, they're going to make me sing. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but a lot of us 
feel that way about the, the singing part of a service. We're not music people. The idea of the word sacrifice is always this, that it's giving up something of yourself by choice. It's not coerced from you. It's not robbed from you. It's giving up something by choice. That's the nature of sacrifice. And so when he says, give the sacrifice of praise, what it means is to say yes when saying no would be so much easier. Like when you know your friend is moving and then they come up to you in church and say, hey, are you free next weekend? And you're like, oh gosh, please let me have plans. You don't, you don't want to say yes at all, but then you look at your calendar and you're wide open. And so you find your mouth saying as a sacrifice, yes. I happen to be free next Saturday. Sometimes praising God is so easy and natural. I find, at least in my life, it's easiest when I'm in a place or a setting where I'm mindful of the goodness of God towards me. And it's no secret that the goodness of God is my favorite song. It's the song that I hope is being played over the loudspeakers in heaven for eternity. But I love the words of that song. And I was on the Camino, um, just outside the city of Bayona, and I was just, it was early morning, the sun was just starting to come up, and I was thinking about the lyrics of that song. And uh, throughout the Camino, I didn't listen to a lot of music. But once in a while, I would let this short playlist run through, once a day. And that I was trusting that the sovereignty of God would be that the songs that came on would have a timing that was divine. And what was so interesting is, as I was turning this corner and I walked up to this big field with, with a, a vineyard, uh, grapes were being grown, the sun was rising, and I was just thinking about how good God was to me in allowing me to be there at that moment. And the song, Goodness of God, came up on the playlist. And because I'd left so early in the morning, I was hoping no other walkers were on the path, but I just stood there like that guy. And you know how when you have the headphones in, you think you sound awesome because you're like with the band. Anyone walking by would have broken their eardrums. But I didn't care. I was singing to all the birds and sleepy animals at the top of my lungs, the goodness of God. And I actually shot this photo to commemorate that moment. It, this is not, it's a very mediocre photo, okay? But it means something to me because of the moment I shared with God in that place. So there are times when praising comes easy. But let's be honest, there are times when praising is hard. And it could be as small a reason as I can't stand my singing voice. I cannot hit those high notes. I'm, I'm self-conscious about it. I don't want to sing at church because I stink at singing, and I don't want people to hear it and be stumbled. Okay, I get that. Maybe it's just that today I can't mean those words on the screen. It would be a lie for me to sing those words. Or maybe if it's not singing, sometimes praise comes in the form of giving a testimony, of speaking out the story of God in our lives. And we say, I have an incredible story to tell, but I hate standing in front of people and talking. I don't like having attention drawn to myself. And again, I completely understand and yet, what God says in his word is, if I'm working in your life, give me the sacrifice. Say yes when no would be easier. 
And just praise. Open your mouth and speak the words of the goodness of God because he's listening and because others are listening. And because ultimately, your own soul is listening to the words that come out of your mouth. Let me finish this way. Psalm 43 was a a song, a prayer written during one of the hardest times in King David's life. And in the last verse of that short psalm, he says these words, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? And then he says to his own soul, which I think we need to learn to do more, put your hope in God, for I will yet, nevertheless, even so, praise him, my Savior and my God. David's words of testimony in that psalm capture perfectly the spirit of what it means to give a sacrifice of praise. Is to say, it is so hard for me to find something worthy of praise in this moment, but nevertheless... I yet will praise God. And I cannot praise him for my present circumstances, but I will praise him in my present circumstances. I will give God the praise he is worthy of, even when life is falling apart. And I will tell my soul to see the praiseworthiness of God. I believe this is one of the reasons God delighted in David so much. Church, let's be a praising church. Let's look for God at work. Let's also look for who God is revealing himself to be in his word every day. And when we see him, let's not keep silent. If God is writing a story in your life that brings him glory, speak the words. Let us hear your voice. Praise God. The sacrifice of praise. I want to invite the band to come back up, and as we close out our service, I want to give us just a minute or two here in this moment to respond to what you've heard. <clears throat> if something is stirring inside of you right now, say it out loud, process it together with God just for a few moments. And then I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, we'll have a chance to sing a couple songs. Let's pray together. God, make us into a church that praises you. Teach us to look for you, to be attentive to you, as you show up in our lives through your word and in our world. We see you. And when we see you, teach us not to be silent, but to sing and to speak our response to a good God. When you've done good things, cause us to praise you. And when we can't find good things, cause us to praise you for being a good God. And as we praise, let a world flooded with bad news Hear about a God who is worthy of worship. A good God who does good to his people. We pray in Jesus' name.
Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.